What's going on, hunters, sportsmen, outdoorsmen out there? This is the second episode of the uh, Off the Riser podcast. I'm your host, Michael Angelo, and uh, Dylan is here. We've uh, got our first guest on the podcast today. Uh, we were supposed to be antelope hunting right now, but life uh, gets in the way all the time <laughs> of that stuff. Uh, so like I was saying, last episode, Dillard is a uh, avid, avid hunter from uh, central central Arizona? Yeah, about an uh, hour east of Phoenix. Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm a mediocre hunter at best. I mean, I, I'm not going to freaking put myself up at the top. Uh, definitely, I'm the uh, worst third-generation mechanic <laughs> to ever walk the earth. And I'm uh, not too good at fishing. I mean, growing up in a the desert, there's uh, not as many opportunities as uh, other places. He's an expert at fishing for <laughs> the uh, desert uh, freaking, what are those things called? Goddamn uh antelope jackrabbit oh yes the antelope jackrabbit the giant and, uh, jackrabbit that wreaks havoc <laughs> oh yeah and, uh, ground, ground squirrels too <laughs> oh really yeah, yeah yeah we used to just set up and uh shoot ground squirrels with 22s it's, uh, it's pretty fun <laughs> it's just it's pretty much just a small prairie dog is what it looks like but uh we're gonna get into uh some detailed information about the differences between the east and the west uh, and how hunting works in both of those environments, very different. Um, and we're also going to school up on some uh, biological and and uh, personal data on the uh, favorite quarry that we both share, the American mule deer and the North American elk and all their subspecies as well. Um, so, Dylan, I'm going to uh, let you take the lead here and... Uh, Let's talk about uh, your experiences growing up as a young hunter in Arizona. All right, so yeah, like I said, I grew up about an hour east of Phoenix. Uh, I hunted jackrabbits, squirrels, doves, pretty much small game with my dad. And then uh, my grandpa was kind of the big game guy, so he kind of sponsored all the deer, elk, and javelina hunts that I've been on. Uh, I guess one thing coming from Arizona is that you do not draw a tag every single year there's definitely some places where you can draw the tag but usually we were hunting up in north or eastern arizona and so you're drawing the tag maybe every other year at best but every couple of years but definitely got a lot of hunting experience just going with uh, a lot of the family members that would draw tags but uh definitely cool place to grow up and a cool place to hunt just limited on some of the tags that you could get uh hell yeah and so like can you explain to some of our listeners the differences between uh hunting like what what does the hunting experience look like out west because arizona is obviously a very arid environment um you've got that whole desert basin going on um with some elevated uh high country desert and mountainous regions in the north so opposed to my experiences of hunting in you know it's mostly tree stand hunting um, old hardwood forests, some some young forests, um, and then of course, you you guys can actually get out in glass and and your spot and stock looks a lot different than still hunting from from Virginia like I'm doing. So um, I want to paint a picture for the listeners on on what exactly that looks like. Yeah, I'd say one thing: uh, hunting in the West, uh, 
you got to be prepared to move. <laughs> you you got to be able to hike, and then like uh, you were just saying, is it's it's glassing. It's a glassing game. So how long have that, you glassed for like a, like any terrain feature? Like the longest you've actually picked apart a terrain feature? Uh, I would say as a general rule of thumb is probably no more than no more than three to four hours. I mean, it really just depends what time of day it is, and then uh, you know what side of the mountain that you're looking at, mm-hmm. but. If you're if you could be there for a couple of hours at a time, yeah. glass that, and then maybe move to the other side of your glassing point and glass another area, that would probably be a really good uh, option to do. Uh, so the terrain uh, out west is pretty crazy. It could be several different habitats, especially in Arizona, uh, down like the low country, kind of where I grew up. It's a uh, desert and it's a lot of cactus. So you're looking at like saguaro cactuses, you got choyas, which is a jumping cactus, and it's a completely different environment as where if you went up to the eastern side, in the high country, where you're getting up about 9,000 foot elevation, and it's, it's pretty similar to uh, a lot of the Colorado high country. So uh, even a lot of the same species can you know thrive, obviously. I like we'll talk about later the uh, mule deer there. You got your your desert mule deer that can inhabit those uh, those desert bottomlands, and then you have uh, Rocky Mountain mule deers which inhabit the high country. Oh, okay, so you guys so, do have Rocky Mountain mule deer. Yeah, so they're they're uh, two different species. Well, they're they're the same species. They're just subspecies of. You hunt them like different species, though. But I yes, you sure. you would uh, hunt them like different species because with desert mule deer, they uh, inhabit a lot of like flats and whatnot so it's it's kind of hard to glass for them uh the few times that i've seen desert mule deer it's it's usually been like driving through like creek bottoms and whatnot and when i say creek bottoms they're usually dry (laughs) yeah that's that's one thing that's definitely different about both of us is that uh your creeks usually have water in them and uh ours ours are always dry if i'm (laughs) hunting a creek bottom that's like a whole ordeal like you got to start at a certain place come in there so you don't spook and then those deer creek bottom terrain out east is is very that's like prime hunting like you'll either set a a, a tree stand just outside of the creek bottom or like i'm a still hunter by design so i'm walking upwind through that entire creek bottom hoping to find a buck bedded late morning or hopefully get to a a small well when i say vantage point i'm talking about like a maybe like a 50 foot change in elevation like a hill like a small hill that i can see you know, maybe a hundred yards further than I normally can. Um, just really interesting how, like, even though I'm a whitetail hunter by design and he's been hunting mule deer and elk in Arizona, like the, the, the places where things overlap and where things are completely different, like will blow my mind every time when you're talking about the differences. Oh yeah. And there's a ton, just going back to like those, uh, creeks and whatnot one one big thing out west is that obviously the animals need water and uh finding water can be a bit of an issue that a must lot be of times key. yeah because one one thing is that there could be a lot of other hunters i know i don't know if arizona went through with their trail camera ban, uh, ban or whatnot but a lot of guys would probably go and set up their trail <laughs> cameras right there right on at the, the one water source. the one water source that was in yeah. the area so I guess in a way it was it, it would be somewhat fair if they did get rid of it because you know those those deer that's going to be their only access to water because there's not very many places and speaking of most of those uh 
they're called water tanks down there but most of those water tanks are filled uh by the game and fish or they're or they're filled by uh ranchers and whatnot right. because obviously there's a lot of years where we will not get a ton of rain mm-hmm. and then the, the population will definitely die off but so that's a big conservation push for your fish and game department is hydrating certain areas where normally seasonally there wouldn't be enough water to, to maintain the population at a healthy rate huh oh yeah but that's that's just one thing like all across arizona even as you get up into some of the high country uh, they still have to go and bring up uh, bring up water and uh, fill it up there because they still won't get enough rainfall. It's just so wild to me because in like in Virginia and I've talked to hunters for that are from New York, from Georgia. It is a completely different world. Like I think the the most I think the biggest threat in eastern hunting, especially well, not so much bow hunting, but I'll get into that like a little later, but. Y'all obviously have to deal with water, and there's terrain differences. But I think our biggest threat, when or to a hunter, is either uh, hunter, hunting pressure, um, and then of course urbanization, because the East has been developed by humanity far more than the West. There are some areas where you were saying a few weeks ago we were talking that like you can go out, and if you know those dirt roads, you might not see anyone like for you know half of a county whereas you know if you maybe travel a mile you will see some type of urbanization um unless you're in prime appalachia of course but then you'll just once you hit low elevation you'll just probably hit some some farmer's land or a water source yeah it's just baffling to me that like like you know, Texas is not as bad, but of course they, they're a big ranching state, so they've got, you know, water tanks laying around and they've got feeders, but I, I never like stopped to pause and think like, you know, there's, it's so reliant on water where you're from, unless you really, I guess maybe, is the high country any different? Like, is it not as bad as what I'm saying? Oh, it's, it's still pretty bad. That's why there's so many forest fires and whatnot. Because even uh, the place where I shot my first deer, mm-hmm. uh, the Kaibab Plateau, mm-hmm. uh, sits just north of the Grand Canyon. I mean, this this is a place that takes years and years and years to draw a uh, buck tag. My family's been hunting it for a long time, but obviously it's a lot harder to draw tags. Uh, that area right there, all the water drains into the Grand Canyon and so wow. they kind of have a the water retention problem up there and obviously I'm no expert but most of those uh, tanks up there are filled by the game and fish and that that deer herd thrives up there but you know they also got uh, uh, antelope herds down at the bottoms and they even got the the bison herd that's up there and then turkeys and the is that a uh, wild bison herd or is it ranched uh they were brought in by Game and Fish, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. So they're at the uh, House Rock Wildlife Area. Oh, it's okay. just it's off the plateau, so it's kind of in like a like a prairie habitat. Yeah. But a lot of them move uh, on and off the plateau, hmm. just depending on the season and whatnot. And then even that's why they had that uh, Grand Canyon hunt. Of, uh, I, I've read. Ago. I've actually read about that. Yeah, yeah I think they had like forty five thousand applicants, but yeah. that that's the same herd. Is because they'll they'll move from the Kaibab over to the Grand Canyon, or they'll be at the House Rock Ranch and mm-hmm. whatnot. But pretty cool. Uh, my brother and my grandpa they got to see them when uh, my grandpa drew the tag in twenty sixteen, I believe. Is it like a yearly application? Yeah, yeah, it's a yearly application. So uh, 
with his he does the champ hunt now because he's handicapped and so he uh that one probably takes about five or six years that was the one time he drew it i imagine he'll probably draw it in the next year but for some of our listeners that aren't familiar so western hunting is very revolvent around applications and draws for tags um some of the eastern states have changed a little bit but i know uh i think texas still in virginia you buy a hunting license virginia slightly changed but you'll buy a hunting license and you get x amount of tags for a different species and that's you're, you're done out west in states like colorado arizona uh montana wyoming you'll buy a hunting license and then you will have a period of time usually in late winter early spring where you will pay a small fee apply for a certain number of tags and it's either by lottery by preference point system or another system and at the end of that drawing which there are multiple a year so if you miss the first one you get a chance for a second one you'll end up drawing whatever tag for whatever unit um, which Dylan will explain a little in more in detail about that because um, you explained it to me very well yeah yeah um, and then there are certain hunts that you can apply for same system but they're special so say instead of getting a general season deer tag on you know your favorite unit that you've scouted there's also special hunts for uh, senior citizens, special uh, hunts for disabled veterans, special and hunts for, for youth too. And then there's, there'll be a certain area that's very restricted in its prime habitat, but to, to conserve that, they only want a certain amount of hunters. So that's like a, a very high prized lottery hunt. And so that's why um, these, you know, you'll, if you're familiar with hunting, you'll, you'll understand that a lot of these places are drawn for year after year and after maybe 10 years of putting in dedication you'll finally get this one tag for this one unit um, just in case y'all out there weren't familiar with, with that concept yeah so one thing kind of just explaining a simple breakdown of the system is uh you got like preference points uh bonus points and then uh random lotteries so uh if you take it colorado for example they're actually running the oldest draw system and they're on that preference point system and basically explained it's whoever has the most preference points is going to draw the tag and so pretty much if i have uh five preference points and you're going in with uh four or anything below that is i'm going to get the tag over you uh there are some uh units that have a minimum preference point to even draw the unit correct uh like, yeah i think i think you're thinking of like the hybrid system that they got but yeah. you you have to have like over i think it's either five or over 10 points but that's like up in like the northwest uh yeah corner which is like unit uh 201 unit two uh, i think they have that system but uh in arizona they're running like a it's the bonus point system so pretty much what I'm pretty sure it is that uh, however many bonus points you have, that's how many times that your name is like entered in. Or like a certain amount of the tags will yeah. go to the guys with the higher number of points, and then the other portion will be random. So it, if you're a new hunter in Arizona, like new adult hunter, we'll say that, do you start out at zero bonus points or there's yes. certain okay yeah you start out at zero bonus points that that's pretty much the same way for everywhere is that you'll you'll start off with zero points uh 
Now, obviously, there's definitely some hunts that you can do that you can draw just about every year. Uh, there's not a whole ton, though. And mm-hmm. the hunt quality might not be the best, but we'll say this, that uh, with Colorado is that they obviously try to get more people out. So they're not really you, – you like – you're you're gonna see other hunters out there as where arizona kind of manages it for more of like a a good quality trophy hunt Mm -hmm. so uh it might take a longer time to draw but when you get out there you know chances are you're probably gonna see more animals and you're gonna see less people is it a a state of of guardians what i mean by that is like if you go to arizona and you're a non-resident hunter is it almost catering to the non-resident hunter because i know in certain places like colorado gets a lot of revenue from out-of-state elk hunters yeah is arizona like positive in regards to that or is it like a fuck you man like well that's taking all the elk (laughs) yeah that's that's the thing with uh colorado is that they have those over-the-counter tags and so if you're willing to pay the money you can go there uh if you're a non-resident going to arizona you're not getting into because they have certain sets of tags that are oh, okay. allocated, it's allocated which i'm pretty okay. sure it's, it's still the same thing here for the draw hunts that's why you can't have a non-resident and a resident apply together right because they're drawing from two different pools that makes and sense so it's usually like allocated it's usually like 10 percent of the tags go to like non-residents hmm. whereas where the other 90 are reserved for right. the residents yeah so uh, i'm pretty sure most states are like that uh Damn, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, we can go on the next talk. So, uh, so getting into uh, explanation of the species here. Um, so, obviously, we all understand as, as hunters, or even if you're not a hunter, we all understand that the historic ranges of wild flora and fauna aren't what they once were. And we're talking... Like, that's my biggest problem. Well, not my biggest problem with people, but there's a lot of misconception about how historically detached we are, or actually not historically detached uh, from things. The if you look at it, what it's, it's 2021. So if you round it down 20 years to 2000, buffalo, or the American bison, I correct myself, were almost extinct less than. 200 years ago that's not a lot of time that's what maybe like three generations or so um and so before uh you know uh american euro-american expansion past the mississippi um and what dylan will definitely uh explain to you guys more is that the animals that we love pursuing have had a very hard time going back to their historical range um which if you look up any biological or a wildlife biologist report i think the the rocky mountain mule deer are supposed to be living in ranges from let me see if i get this province right uh northern alberta down to the sonoran desert in mexico well, that and would then, be the desert mule deer, right? Down there. But including the subspecies, yeah. Um, and then all the way to British Columbia and the rest of the West Coast, and I think their range stops at somewhere near, probably what, like Oklahoma. Uh, 
Yeah, about Oklahoma, Texas, uh, right. Kansas, Nebraska is where they kind of stop at. Exactly. But then there has been uh, the mule deer actually have been expanding. There's actually been reports of them uh, being in Fairbanks and Southeast Alaska. Wow, also. all the way in so, Alaska. Yeah, wow, two two different uh, locations in Alaska that they've been cited, and then there's even one that got hit, and I'm pretty sure is at some point yeah. in the last year. But that just shows the the resiliency of them. I mean, they're the the mule deer that do migrate which is mostly rocky mountain mule deer that are living up in high country they'll migrate down to their their winter ranges but a lot of them will migrate up to uh like 70 to 100 miles That's every, every every single year and they typically follow the same routes they go to the same places so mm. it's it's almost like it's just uh just embedded with them right that they'll just go and do that you see in comparison the the american whitetail um, they are not a migratory species of of big game. Um, the, the the scientific name is is escaping me. It ends with Virginianus. That's how I remember. Yeah. But um, whitetail, and this is what I was talking about before we started recording. Uh, you can, the biggest difference I see between whitetail hunters and and mule deer hunters is that there's this big like push that you see on especially on social media where you'll have a guy or a group of guys and they're scouting working on their food plots and then you'll see you know hey oh this buck has um you know like a like a 24 inch not maybe 24 inch but like a, a, a huge spread he's got solid tall uh bra- uh tines He's probably like maybe a hundred and eighty inch plus deer, and they stay on that deer for the entire year, and they pattern the buck, they watch his habits as best as they can, and then they finally get into a stand where it's good, and they're missing opportunities, and then finally, maybe like two weeks before the season ends, they finally get this one particular buck. That that is not a Western hunting ordeal. I've not talked to one hunter that routinely hunts mule deer where they can pattern a buck because because of that migratory um habit that they that they have yeah so that there is resident herds of uh, mule deer and elk that i guess you could do that with but most of the time you know they're going to be migratory or once the the hunting season starts is then it's everything's going to change because mm-hmm. uh one thing is just the public land and how many people are getting out there is always going to push them around so they could you know move out of their uh regular territories and they're going to go into the the deep and nasty so they're going to be out right the, the roughest canyon or you know the 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 highest ridge line <laughs> they're, they're always going to be in some hard to get to place uh is that shift from hunting pressure or i guess you know like the late summer bachelor period to uh dealing with hunter pressure is it even more so shittier in arizona because of the whole like there's only so much water ordeal and everyone wants to hunt the water yeah well i mean either way uh animals are going to find their way to the water yeah so obviously you you know you're not going to be hunting at nighttime that's probably when they're going to go down and get water because i've i've tried doing the the water hunting before and you know it's always a hit or a miss because Mm -hmm. even though the landscape is that dry and there's you know it's mostly man-filled uh water tanks and everything there's still other options out there for them I and mean, you even can though, even you could set up a ground blind and sit you know 
three days. Yeah. Every day hunting hard from, you know, legal shooting light to end of shooting light and you could not see anything but a herd of cattle come through. It, exactly. And that that's that's my only experience that I've gotten from hunting water is that we just, we, <laughs> just we sat cows. there the whole time and nothing came in. I mean I know my, my grandpa has told me before he's had success with it for elk, but it, it really just depends like where the tank is and how far off the road it is and Too hopefully you'd even hopefully you've even seen them there before because yeah. You never know. There, there's so many times out west that you know other people are just gonna surprisingly show up. Mm. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So it really just depends on that area. <laughs> and so um, we're gonna kind of tandem talk this, but um, because I like and why Dylan's taking the lead on this is I have maybe two months experience e-scouting and learning about western hunting and mule deer and elk um i've actually never seen okay no that's a lie i've seen like one herd of elk in pike national forest on a camping trip um and so i'm gonna let dylan nerd out on introducing you especially if you're a new hunter that's hunting just like me for the first time in a western state uh to some uh, deep information about the animals themselves, focusing on um, the American mule deer and the uh, American elk, and then all their subspecies and the differences there therein. Yeah, so I guess uh, one thing in just trying to find them is uh, obviously you're not always going to see them, especially if you're glassing and whatnot. So mm-hmm. you know they they could always be there, but then again, they might not be there. So using uh e-scouting and whatnot i've kind of gotten into it a little bit uh for my deer hunt that i went on this last year uh it it turned up some deer and then this elk hunt that i went on last year it it turned up some elk so uh i'm not i'm obviously i'm not like the most professional at it uh or i should say great at it but disclaimer we we are not professionals we we are definitely not (laughs) professionals (laughs) but uh yeah obviously you need to identify uh, food and water and cover that's that's what they're going to need and so obviously the cover is going to be their shelter it's going to be their place to go and escape so if you're going to be looking at that uh, especially for like elk and whatnot you know they're going to need they're, they're going to need to get water every day and then they're also going to be uh, feeding in the uh, mornings and then the evenings and then uh, at night if they can uh, that's general for for most species. Yeah, so yeah, even yeah. even out east, it's the same thing. So, uh, what a deer's day normally looks like is, um, and and I'm talking about this from a base, not hunting pressure, because obviously, well, historically, hunting pressure has affected herds whether or not like they keep some of their habits through the summer, but um, assuming there's not a lot of extra loom and there's no weird weather, um, early season. Bucks are going to be in bachelor groups. Does and fawns are going to be kind of in their, in their little groups. And they will feed from early morning, like just before dawn, into uh, late morning. The difference between whitetail and mule deer, and correct me if I'm uh, messing this up, is mule deer will routinely seek out uh, shade in mid-morning and midday um, after they finish because deer are... Uh, what is it? Remnants. They, 
they have multiple stomach chambers and they chew cud just like cows. So they'll feed, seek um, shade in certain locations, bed down for a bit, and then they'll come out of their beds and, and uh, move into a feeding pattern that lasts into the evening. And then at certain points um, in their feeding routes, they'll, they'll go out and, and seek water. And if it's the rut, they're chasing does and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's the same thing with elk. So elk and mule deer, you know, they'll, they'll be feeding it early in the morning and then late into the evening. And then obviously at nighttime and whatnot, they could still be feeding or they could be going down to get their water, especially if they're pretty pressured. So uh, during the daytime, yeah, they, they are going to go into their, their cover and their sanctuaries and they're going to go bed down. Uh, Talking uh, escape routes, so... For people that may not be uh, familiar with the concept, if I'm looking at a map, ho- hopefully everyone listening to this podcast can read a topo map, <laughs> um, do an episode on that. Uh, if you're looking at a map, what terrain features are you looking for in that basin you're hunting uh, that identify it as an escape route that they'll use um, if you you know, bust you know, that bachelor group out of the basin? So you can follow them. What what does that look like on a map? So, uh, I mean, most of them are going to escape down into uh, draws or back over saddles, or just getting to cover is going to be their thing. Mm-hmm. But like some of these deer that I spooked up this uh, this last season, is that they dip down into the most brush, dense, thick stuff, which obviously was down into a draw. Right. So. We were trying to get up underneath them, and we ended up above them, and they spooked, and they took off down the draw. So uh, I would say that would probably tie more into archery hunting is locating escape routes, which obviously I'm not a big archer at all. So uh, those that, at that point, you know, you'd want to be hunting those areas. But if you're rifle hunting, you're, you're trying to get out in glass where they're, where they're uh, feeding or where they're uh, getting water, and that would be a good spot to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, with bow hunting you might you might want to get them in a spot where they're going to be able to come to you so with those like escape routes or just their their routes back to their bedding areas or even just their bedding areas uh those are the spots that you're going to want to find them in so that's why you know archery hunters are usually hunting in the early season when yeah uh the herds have not migrated yet and they're up in the the high country where it's usually a lot thicker is where in rifle season they've moved down they're not in as thick stuff they it depends on the area, so. It definitely is a game of cat and mouse, and uh, all my fellow bow hunters know uh, if you, we're going to say, if you fail to properly recon your uh, chosen unit uh, and make a plan for certain contingencies, obviously you can't anticipate everything, but the scenario I'm referencing is, say, you've got, you know, a bachelor group of bucks, you finally got on them, and you end up in a place where, you know, maybe the end of the stock isn't feasible or you like um, end up above them when you should be below them or the thermals betray you, you're going to want to know what general escape routes look like those bucks will use so that you're not trying to find them in, you know, one half of a basin when they took this draw to the northern half of the basin. And that way you can earn a chance at another stock. Um, Whereas in rifle hunting, obviously, it's not important because if, if you're a decent marksman, I, I would take maybe 
what, like a 400-yard shot at the most. Like, maybe if you want to push it and he's, you know, there's five minutes of shooting light left, maybe you'll go past that, but you have, you could shoot a buck across an entire basin if you really needed to. So that those cat and mouse tactics aren't as important and are not going to um, fuck your hunt over as much if you, if you make a mistake. Um, so let's get into uh, some differences between the subspecies that, that we're familiar with for mule deer and elk. Yeah, so if you're looking at a mule deer, you know, the, the primary two subspecies are going to be Rocky Mountains and deserts. I know there's a few other uh, extra subspecies that live in California, but I, I would never hunt there, so <laughs> I don't really pay attention too much to it. Uh, from where I'm from, I, I've, only hunted, I've only hunted the uh, Rocky Mountain mule deers. I've hunted the desert mule, deers, uh, mule deer once. Uh, they're definitely uh, much harder, I'd say. <laughs> because, like I said before, they're going to be in those uh, those flatlands, and it's not really good glassing terrain. So, so you, like, at that point, if you're glassing, like, flat desert, micro-terrain can really fuck you then for, yeah. for glassing. Because what I'm imagining, I've never hunted anywhere. Like, Colorado is, is even in the southern parts, it's still high desert, so it's not the same as... Um, the terrain that Dylan was referencing. Um, but I would imagine, you know, a buck and a coulee 500 yards away, if there's a small rise between you and him, you'll never see him. Yeah, and I actually have a story with that. So I've never really hunted, like, big game and whatnot down in, like, the flats of, like, the Sonoran Desert. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time that we've been uh, deer and elk hunting, it's obviously up in the uh, the high desert or up in the Ponderosa Pines in the high country. Okay. But uh, one thing, like you were saying with the micro-terrain, is uh, when I kind of started hunting on my own, uh, I was in an area that my dad used to take me to a lot for just uh, rabbits and whatnot. And I had seen coyote tracks in there before. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't figure out where they were coming from and whatnot because I was going up to the one water tank that was out there. Right. And so I had kind of, like, passed by, like, the area where they were coming out of and obviously, you know, lost them because, you know, the tracks aren't just going to stay there forever. Uh, and I came out to this big, flat, open area, which I'm like, they should be able to see them in here. And it, it took me a little while to kind of venture out there a little bit more. And I found that there was this whole six-foot-deep gulch Crazy. that had a couple little exits coming out of it, almost like a like a ramp. But if you're just standing there glassing... But if you're standing there, you're not going to see it. Yeah, it just looks flat. Yep, and so I then figured out that that was the, uh, the route that the coyotes were uh, <laughs> going up and down because right. there was tracks all in this thing. Ah. So it, it took them uh, pretty much in line with, like, the water source, so they are pretty much just moving... Uh, out of there and into the uh the more vegetated areas mm. and going up to their water and so finally uh it was the next trip that i went out there i went and got set up and started calling and immediately <laughs> one one came out of that same gulch nice <laughs> so it, it was it was pretty much you know you're you're figuring out where they're at and figuring out their travel routes it's the same thing with right, uh, right. with deer and elk obviously 
So it's just finding that habitat because obviously the animals are not going to be everywhere. It's not like when you're driving on the uh, on the highway and you're going to run into one every once in a while. People think that you're just going to go out there and see them. You're you're most likely not going to see them. <laughs> what do you think of uh, road hunters? Ooh. And by road hunter, I mean like we're, we're talking about the guy that's probably like twenty. Yeah, I'm going to say thirty plus. I'm just going to yeah, thirty plus. He pulls up in his freaking like. 98 Silverado drives up the county road and is just stopping every half mile glassing with a spotting scope and he's like ah there's the elk and then he leaves his truck grabs a <laughs> a Winchester Model 70 shoots the thing and he hasn't hiked more than I'm going to say a, a kilometer to to fill his tag what do you think about those well you you just <laughs> described my uh my grandpa's way of hunting <laughs> but when he was younger obviously he used to get after it and uh get into the backcountry and everything but it's usually for guys that can't hike anymore really so mm. i say that or it's just someone that's just lazy or just doesn't have any experience or they just know that the uh the spot where they're gonna be so i know i know I, know I know with him a couple times he's uh he's been like the elk are always in this area right here and then you could just drive up there <laughs> on the road and you get out maybe walk a little bit into the uh into the tree line and there's gonna be elk <laughs> uh, i feel like i don't know i i was listening or watching rather uh, an episode of um a series that Rem- remy warren has uh called alone and Re- remy appears to be I know he is very big on earning your kill, and oh, yeah. that i that idea is is very personal i think I think everyone uh, unless you're you know obviously unless you got a bad knee or limp leg or something you can't but I feel like I owe my quarry some sort of trade off like and that's why I like bow hunting so much is like I really have to work to get into that animal's you know living room take him down i have to be about my my shit all summer putting in hours um getting in some target time really putting in my scouting being physically fit enough to then earn the right to kill and then eat that animal um rifle hunting i see it as just like a a slight trade-off for the fact that i know my my success rate is going to go up 40 percent so i can fill my freezer yeah, so I say I I obviously agree with you. I mean, I I love hiking and glassing and just having a a very rough time. But I uh, I'd say with most road hunters, just that they're going to be limited on time. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't get time to go scout, and it can be effective uh, if you drive. You don't so you're not driving up and down the road and hoping that one runs across the road, but you're driving from glassing point to glassing point, right. getting out and glassing. Yep. That can be an effective technique if there's not a shitload of other people out there doing it. But even if there is a lot of other people out there doing it, is that you can still turn up animals and they they might or mm-hmm. they might turn up animals and then you don't see a damn thing. So that's definitely it, it's a technique, uh, and it really depends on the area. So like. Uh, 
where we would hunt elk a lot uh, south of Flagstaff, there are a ton of road systems. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can't really get away from the roads as we're here in Colorado. There's definitely a lot of areas where you're not going to go into the yeah. get away from the road. But but I suppose you could use that road stuff to your advantage. Yeah, just like that, yeah. driving from glassing point to glassing point. But I think some people are just inexperienced and they'll just drive up and down the road hoping that one jumps out. That, right. That rarely works it can work but it rarely works but on the other hand like you were saying like definitely earning your kills uh, it's a good way to go i've definitely been on a, uh, a few hunts where we were pretty far back there <laughs> <laughs> i know one was my like my first javelina hunt we were pretty we we're <laughs> there there was a good mountain in between us and the uh and the truck when yeah. uh, my brother shot his and <laughs> nice. I remember my dad and my uncle, they, they just got it. I mean, those things aren't very heavy. They're probably about 30, 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I know my dad and my uncle put it on a, uh, on a stick, <laughs> carry it out <laughs> like that. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a way to do it. <laughs> but, and then, then with elk, you know, it's been the same situation. I know this last year when we got out, uh, we were competing with a lot of other hunters and we were already pretty far off the road. And I had encircled an area where I, I knew, so this kind of goes in with the uh, with the uh, e-scouting and whatnot going on the maps, is that I picked out an area that was far enough away from the road, so it's about a mile away from a road in just about every direction. And it was up and it was a, down this really steep valley, so it's probably like a, a good like thousand foot descent, and then you're going up another thousand feet you know, over the course of like two miles. So That's it, it was key. some really rough, rough yeah. country. But I would say this is that the other hunters also probably looked at that terrain and said the same thing because when we got out there, there were guys to our left and right. And then as we got up on top of the next ridge, there was guys in front of us. And eventually we kind of just, you know, tried to give them their space and detoured around them. And then finally we kind of got into an area where we did not see any people for the rest of the day and we found a, a few good glassing spots but at the end of the day we had actually circled back to a hill that i had, had marked on onyx and sure enough that's where the elk were don't think those people crazy or not as crazy as you are oh, when, there, when it comes to hunting in there that definitely, country <laughs> there definitely is but then also you have to keep in mind that the other hunters might not be as committed because that that hill that i had marked uh we were actually planning on glassing that first thing in the morning and we saw other hunters going up the south side of it mm -hmm. when we had uh pretty much were we were hiking back to to back to that hill at the end of the day that was the same hill where the elk were <laughs> they were just up on top of the uh they're on like the north northwest side mm. of the hill and those guys were walking up on the south side so obviously they must have quit like halfway through where the elk weren't there yet but I'm, I'm pretty sure that those elk had bedded down because pretty much this this area that i had mapped out was the top of that hill was an open ridge so that's where they could feed but it also had that south facing slope where those other hunters were walking up that had great feed right there because elk are both uh they're grazers and their browsers browsers so yeah. yeah so they're eating grass and forbs and so on the on that 
north side where we did see them, it was pretty much covered with uh, aspens and Douglas firs, which I'm pretty sure they just eat uh, from aspens in the uh, early season. Yeah, it's like the because buds of by, the aspens. Yeah, by then, yeah, with those, uh, the forbs and whatnot. Uh, by then it was late season, so obviously all the uh, leaves were gone and whatnot. Yeah, they're looking for grass yep, in so open there's, areas under the snow. Yep, so there was uh, there was plenty of grass up there on that north, on the, uh, my bad, the south face and also up on that open ridge and so it was just it was good a good little chunk of elk habitat but the other thing that also made it is that there was a creek that actually had water in it mm. which is not very common i'm sure in the summertime there's probably not water in that creek but there was water so there was food water and cover and obviously those other guys that were going up the south side must have quit because then they probably would have pushed the elk off, but you, you got to know that the, the elk are definitely thinking, most likely thinking about that too. Yeah. Is because they can they can scale stuff a lot quicker than we can. Because when we had hiked up there later after we had shot them, it, it probably took a good 30 minutes to get up there. Uh, an elk could cover that ground in probably about a minute. So it's just, you know, obviously like their lung capacity and they're just, they're so much more powerful than us. That's that another. They they know that you know some lazy humans not going to go up there. That's and another. If they are, they're most likely going to hear them, smell them, or see them, and they're going to be able to escape. And so, though those elk did not see us on our way back, because we pretty much we were probably about three hundred and fifty yards when we did uh, spot them, mm-hmm. and that kind of just opened up a perfect opportunity because we were we were on the uh, adjacent ridge line to their north. And then that's where we set up and shot both of them, which I do not recommend. <laughs> do not recommend at all. That's so. another uh, big difference between hunting out west and the east is that um, when I'm hunting, and I wish I could hunt in the Shenandoah Valley where you can use a rifle, but for me, like, one, glassing is, is just not a thing for us uh, in eastern uh, mature or young growth forests. And then two... The whole food cover water thing is not as you don't need the trifecta of those things in the same zone necessarily because the whole like they've they've got plenty of cover um what cover usually looks like for me uh back in virginia is any sort of combination of young growth forest that hasn't been trimmed or controlled burned and then um i forget what the plant is called we just call it thicket so no i'm talking it's like either like waist high or shoulder high brambles and thorns that these deer will that they can just like push through it but if a hunter is trying to get through that and it grows like in these like large bushes um combined with a bunch of other stuff like it it's really hard to to bushwhack through that and so if you spook deer they're not going to go very far but they will go into some thicker lower terrain um, to get out of those more open um, trees and then whitetails are, are browsers so they will they've got until I'd say until about like late November they've got a decent amount of feed uh, even without food plots um, they're eating any browse that they can get to even if they have to stand up to get it um, and there's plenty of I mean, you've got some grazing going on in in meadows, but for the most part, 
um, in my county, the Tidewater region. There's more than enough food and water to go around because we have unlimited creek systems. Um, so that's not as much of a problem. But uh, it, it's just interesting to see the differences between, like even in a more lush area like Colorado, um, how much effort and planning go into finding that trifecta of food, water, cover, as opposed to I can just still hunt through almost any any like non-flat and farm terrain. Yeah. And as long as I understand where the deer's bed's at, I can approximate them to a, a, a like a, a radius within their, their bedding area and get a kill. It's just whether or not you are enough of a, a, a proficient still hunter to, to notice that, that deer in the thicker eastern woods. Yeah, and then also since you brought it up, uh, the differences between, you know, east and west is that also just the differences between western places themselves because mm-hmm. obviously there, there is so much different habitat. I mean, even in Colorado, I mean, most of it is pretty darn dry. I mean, unless you're, you're getting up into some of the high mountains, I mean, that's why they're obviously out west. There's a lot of fires. And uh, down lower, obviously, it's, it's pretty darn dry, especially areas where you got a lot of pinion junipers because those things just suck up a ton of water. And I mm. know a lot of uh, conservation organizations are trying to work on getting them out because really yeah they're they're actually they affect a lot of the uh native prairie and obviously i'm not some forester so i don't know a whole lot about it i've just you know heard people talk about it but Mm. like you were saying uh because even in in arizona the areas that we'd hunt it's either uh up in the uh on the ponderosa pines which a lot of those uh pine forests were actually pretty clear so you you could look in there and you can glass something up to about 200 300 yards because uh with deer and elk that's usually where we you know you'd see them see them at they're usually moving through the uh yeah. the woods up there but then if when you get into the uh the pinion juniper and then even a bit lower into like the the manzanita uh uh woodland kind of areas that's what that plant is called i was trying to it's not mesquite but i know uh in colorado um, there's manzanita and there's another plant that it's 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 technically a, a shrub but it grows really tall and trying to glass deer in that is hell well I, th- I think you're thinking of the uh, pinion junipers like it, the ones it is have. a it is a slight conifer's tree maybe it is pinion so, so it's the you talk about the ones where we work right yeah yeah so those, okay, yeah, those, yeah. those are pinion junipers and uh, elk and deer will be in there but you're not uh, seeing them from across it, the basin. It is very, <laughs> it's very, very hard. It is very thick. Uh, <laughs> I've hunted deer and elk in those before, and it, yeah. it is it is tough. And then that's actually uh, the area where we'd go javelina hunting a lot. There's always a good amount of pinion juniper. But, Crazy. Yeah, like I was saying, pinion junipers are you know they they suck up a lot of the water, and so it actually kind of ruins a lot of the uh, the native grasses that wildlife would be eating. Right. Because, because that area is kind of overgrown. they've kind of spread out, and uh, I guess well, I I, sh- I shouldn't say I guess, but I know from other people that I've listened to and then research I've done on my own is that most of these areas where there are pinion junipers, like all around here, uh, where the kind of like the mountain areas kind of meet the plains in Colorado, yeah, is that there used to not be 
as any. much oh, okay. or any at all yeah. pinion juniper. It was much more uh, open prairie. Huh. Kind of like, I, I guess, how uh, probably how like the other side, like if you get to like South Park, would probably be where right. it's like all just plains. Yeah, exactly. And then you go up into the, the pines and whatnot. Right. So, but then uh, that middle area is now mostly covered in some areas by yeah, like, juniper. Yeah, like down here because there's yeah. a lot of pinion juniper, which I, I know, I think that deer and elk both eat the... Uh, the pinion juniper berries mm-hmm. i think and then also uh i don't know what else i think that's the only thing that they eat off of them they won't eat like the uh i know if it gets hard back east um cedar like the like young cedar if they can find it there's a difference in color there's like a light green and a dark green and deer if they're uh being pushed by uh lack of brows they'll eat those young like just the tips of some conifer species mm-hmm. i don't know if like do they do they eat that stuff over here if it gets hard or are they already in their winter range and they're just pawing through snow uh yeah i i don't know too much on that because i've only been i've been on a few hunts where they've uh where snow has uh played a role yeah but usually by then i'm mostly seeing them eat grasses when we do see them so mm-hmm. uh i guess i'd say that's uh just going back on that one difference between east and west is just the amount of animals because i i, I kind of lived in the the same place as you obviously yeah uh, a few years ago and i didn't hunt in those three years that i was there right uh but you saw deer all the time Oh, yeah. You're going to see deer. Yeah. The problem for me back east is whether I can get in range because everything under the undergrowth is working against you. Like when I killed my first buck, uh, there was a, I was bordered to the west by uh, state parkland. So you can't hunt over that line. We're 150 yards away from it. Uh, You could hear um the the state parkway going through the park so that was maybe like on a quiet morning like a click away but there's two woodlots that i would stand in depending on what time of the morning it was and i know that there's a feeding route coming i assume it starts in the park and then they come out and their bed is somewhere northeast of me and so there's this big it's like a like a telephone pole line and all of that is knee-high grass and it's bordered uh, by thicket, and then you get into mature hardwood. And I killed my first buck on the edge of that, you know, that grass. Yeah. But getting to him, and I mean, I shot him with double-op buck at like maybe 50, 60 yards. Yeah. Um, getting to him sucked because what ended up happening was I I heard movement over a rise. I was just sitting... Uh, in a stand and I just had a hunch I was like you know what I'm just gonna cruise toward the uh, open area and see if anything is you know past my line of sight I can only see like 100 yards in the in the wood line so I hear a big crash and I'm like okay that's not a squirrel or a raccoon so I talk like I go over the ridge and I'm like okay uh well there's a mature doe standing in front of me and I'm like well fuck it I'll take her meat is meat um and so she starts stepping out of the clearing or into the clearing. And then I see another set of legs and I'm like, okay, let's see what's going on. 
the, the doe is like 30 yards away from me. The second pair of legs is maybe 20 yards past that. And as soon as he stepped out, I see brow tine and the end tine of his uh, left antler. And I'm like, oh, well, here we go. Um, but getting up to that point, I mean, you're moving six inches at a time, trying not to crack a twig or whatever, because, you know, you're hunting 100 yards at a time. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, because I'd say that's uh, pretty different. I, I'd say I'm probably not the... I can be quiet, but you know, most of the times that I've uh, shot something, it's it's been more than probably more than 75 yards so that's like the shortest yes that's crazy but, like i've never like it's like between 75 yards and 400 yards yeah, i've never killed a deer over 100 yards away yeah ever in my life yeah, <laughs> so. the only the only one that would come close was probably my first year that was probably about 50 60 yards yeah and that's that was pretty pretty darn close Everything else is it's it's usually within that uh, one hundred to probably like three hundred. Yeah, yeah. I I personally would not take a shot over four hundred, just because you know you should get a little bit closer. But I then, just wouldn't want to walk over there. <laughs> then also it also depends on your uh, on your optics and even if you turn them up at that range. Right. Because yeah. I'd say a lot of times that I've I've actually spotted stuff. It's usually. 400 yards or less yeah i mean you got to have a uh, a tripod and a, a good spot oh, a spot and scope or just binoculars mm-hmm. on a tripod to see anything past that because otherwise you know there's too much play if you're just holding it and you know i didn't invest for in a tripod <laughs> until this uh last year and that being still actually you know kind of it, it helped me turn up some elk on this uh that last deer hunt that i mm-hmm. went on but yeah that definitely has an effect in it uh since you were talking about it uh i think we can come to somewhat of a conclusion is that uh animals like to feed on edges that is like that is big like what you're just talking about is just edge terrain because one one tactic that is really popular out west and that i know that we always used was uh burn areas so obviously I think some people might just get it wrong is that they think that all oh, the, the deer and elk are going to be like right at the center of the burn area and then they go freaking bushwhacking their way across all these fallen trees and then all this new undergrowth that's coming up that they'd like to eat and it is a pain walking through burn areas is absolutely painful because <laughs> it is some rough stuff and you throw some snow in there uh you're you're slipping on these snow covered logs and everything that that makes it much worse but uh a lot of those burn areas uh you know deer and elk are going to be on the edges of those and then even more so they're going to be in an area where they can uh get to cover quickly Mm -hmm. so most of the time they're not going to be out in the open i'm sure with some hunting pressure they could go out and be in the middle of a burn area because they know people might not go in there because it's just thick and uh could be freaking really rough to get into and for them it's really no problem but that really just depends on the the area how thick it was and uh how the hunting pressure is so uh to close out uh this episode uh we have come up with three tips each 
because um, we were kind of freeballing it uh, before about uh, mental resiliency dealing with failure on hunts um, because we both agree that especially a new hunter you will fail more times than you succeed until you come to a point where you've rounded out all your edges and you can for the most part because you know there are obviously are blown stocks um that's why they call it hunting not killing uh but yeah three tips from each of us um on how to deal with failure as a hunter whether new or experienced so one that i would say is definitely just enjoy the hunt you will definitely have more just as many unsuccessful hunts than you will uh successful uh trips so i i guess that that's one thing especially for a new hunter because i know uh obviously when i was a lot younger obviously i still get bummed out now but it's it's more about just the experience of being out there and back then you know it was with my family and now it's it's with my friends uh enjoy the hunt because it's just about being out there and getting away from uh the regular world which uh, i think both of us do not like at all but uh getting out there and just enjoying it successful or not you're still out there doing what you want to do uh one that kind of follows after that is patience so obviously you're you know there, there's sometimes you might get out there and you're spotting uh deer in like the first the first 30 minutes of the hunt yeah and then sometimes if you don't see them you kind of get down on yourself you're just like oh where where the hell are they and just have the patience because you could go the entire day without seeing anything or you can go an entire couple of days without seeing them so that's just a reality so yeah definitely enjoying the hunt having patience and then the other one is definitely uh say getting in shape (laughs) definitely getting in shape especially if you're going to hunt out west uh if you down an elk and you're not anywhere near a road it's not like you can just you know drive up to the thing you gotta you have to quarter it out (laughs) and that is that's going to take a lot because (laughs) it can be a pain on where you're at or especially if they uh they usually prefer those really shitty areas and you're going to have to pack this thing out a couple of miles and make multiple trips because you're not going to pick up that entire elk at once. So my three tips, I'm going to start with uh, how, or at least knowing how to motivate yourself. And this comes with really knowing yourself as a person. And I'm talking about the type of motivation, not when it takes, you know, like that's more on the physical fitness side of whether you can make it to that next ridge with enough wind to pursue an animal especially if you're an archer but i'm talking about the motivation it takes to sit in a ground blind for eight to ten hours and not lose your shit hoping that you'll you know see that buck uh, go into range it really takes a certain type of um mental and physical constitution to to be patient wait out for the uh the right opportune time and just stay you know uh content with your situation uh when you're when you're hunting in those long like boring ass periods of time (laughs) yeah and just to follow off on that is that one thing that kind of applies the same thing but just out west is 
you know, you might not be seeing anything in the one uh, valley or basin that you're in. And it's that, uh, that resiliency or that drive that says, well, let's go to the next ridge. Because a lot of the times that might, that might be the thing that makes you successful is just freaking uh, being unsuccessful and just be like, okay, well, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go see what's on the other side. And I guess that's just probably just uh, curiosity of human nature and whatnot, but also just that, that drive to be successful. Uh, just freaking really getting out there and putting in the work. And then uh, my next tip is going to be uh, 360 degree awareness. And I'm not talking about just, you know, eyes, ears, smell, senses. Uh, if you're walking through an area and you're still hunting, uh, obviously you're looking for your quarry, but are you also looking for information that can feed your next hunt? Uh, this is really important because if you're hunting the same unit or series of units for an entire season, obviously every time you're not going to see animals in the same place. But if you walk by a certain species of uh, feed, um, if you walk by a certain terrain feature that, you know, maybe has hunting pressure this weekend, but if you take some time off in a few weeks and you're hunting on a Tuesday or Wednesday, there's not going to be as many hunters there. So hunt that same area if it's prime habitat. And that'll ensure that the next time uh, you have some time to hunt, because our, our lives are crazy back when we, you know, return to the normal world, um, that's more information that you're getting um, to get you closer to that, you know, 20 yard shot, um, putting an arrow through his heart or, you know, that 200 meter shot, uh, if you've got a rifle in your hand. Uh, and then my last tip to close things out is going to be just be confident in yourself. Um, I've heard a lot of, um, hunters that, that I actually look up to, whether they know it or not, um, and I mean, these are just local hunters that I'm taking tips from and talking about experiences. And, you know, there's always going to be moments that they share with me um, where, you know, it like Dylan was saying, you know, oh, just one more ridge or some weather comes in and you get that disheartened feeling to where, you know, maybe I'm calling it quits because this weather system storms in. But everyone from Colorado knows that weather will roll through and in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, it's going to be sunny again or the hail is not going to last forever. And you can just fight through that tiny period and get back to your hunt. Or it could snow. Or, or, or it could or snow. It can, it can always take a, a good turn for the worse and it could snow all night or it can... Uh, I've been on a hunt before where it rained the entire time and that's not too common in the West. And when, you're definitely, uh, you're not in the best mood when you're wet. You know, I, both of us can attest to that. Oh, I hate my feet being wet. <laughs> oh yeah, being wet is definitely the worst thing. But. but that's not an excuse to hunker down. And I'm not saying never hunker down and wait for weather because deer don't really like moving through rough weather either. Oh no. But if am I gonna stop glassing just because some weather comes in? Probably not. I'm probably just gonna hang a tarp up over me so I'm a little more comfortable or find a nice tree to sit on that's pretty thick and, and keep at it. People that hunt hard, um, people that stay optimistic are going to be more successful than if you let yourself get grumpy and uh, and you just end up being a quitter. Even when the weather is completely shitty. So uh, that's going to round out this one. Uh, 
next episode, we're going to uh, touch base on some more hunting tips and some news that's uh, happening in the hunting world. Uh, and then if you uh, want to check out my Instagram for some uh, additional content, you can either look up the uh, Off the Riser account for Instagram. We're still building that. Um, or you can look up my Instagram. That's uh, Michelangelo OTR. Um, if I let, if I if I change that to something a little more uh, publicized, I'll let you guys know. But that's Michelangelo OTR on Instagram. Um, thanks for listening, guys, and make sure you uh, live life off the riser. Thanks for listening.